0: If you're listening to this episode as it comes out, but you're not a Herald Sun subscriber, we have a deal that might interest you. Take up a 12-month digital subscription and we'll send you a pair of Jabra Elite Active 65T true wireless headphones. How's that for a mouthful? So not only do you get unrestricted access to the Herald Sun, including my weekly columns and much more, but you also get a pair of headphones to listen to this podcast, Or anything else, for that matter. The deal costs $7 a week for the first 12 months. Minimum cost is $364. Conditions apply. Learn more at heraldsun.com.au forward slash Jabra. That is Jabra, J-A-B-R-A. It was enough for a pill for every adult Australian.
1: Real MDMA was a, a product that your bells and your knew could make a lot of money from. And they suddenly find out that there's a carload of heavies driving to Mick Gatto's son's wedding to kill one of the guests.
0: This is Andrew Rule with Life and Crimes. This week, we're back with journalist and author, Keith Moore. Keith, I think Melbourne might have been the scene of two of the world's biggest ecstasy busts back in the day back in the early uh, 2000s. The first one was 2005. Can you recall anything about that before we get to the big one?
1: Yes. If I was to say to anybody, almost anywhere in the world, where do you think the two previous world's biggest ecstasy busts were, not many people would pick little old Melbourne. You'd think maybe Amsterdam, you'd think New York. But the truth is, and it is still the case, the two previous world's biggest ecstasy busts have both been in Melbourne first one was in 2005, involved 1.2 tonnes of pills. There's tonnes of pills we're talking about. And uh, two years later, 2007, 15 million pills, 4.4 tonnes, crammed into tomato tins in a container shipped from Italy to Melbourne. And when I'm saying stuffed into tomato tins, when the AFP first seized it, that tomato tin looked exactly like the type of big tomato tins that do get imported to Melbourne that all the Italian restaurants use. They were perfectly sealed, which obviously means the Calabrian Mafia in italy that packed those pills had access to an official cannery so you know it just shows the pair of the that they've yeah. actually got factories that generally produce real tins of tomatoes that they can say hang on we just need your uh, equipment for the next couple of days because we're going to shove 15 million pills in there they didn't just put pills in there they had worked out exactly what weight a container load of real tin tomatoes would weigh And they then had to completely match it so that when the containers get weighed, obviously if it's twice as heavy as it should be, flags go up. So they didn't have enough pills to fill every tin, so they actually put gravel in some of the tins so that the 15 million pills plus the gravel weighed exactly what a container load of tins of tomato would.
0: Masterful piece of planning, but not good enough.
1: And the connection between both of those importations was... The Calabrian Mafia, both in Italy and Europe, which is where the pills were made, up near the border around the Belgium area, which is where most of the world's real ecstasy gets made, comes back to Griffith, in that we talked in a previous episode about the name Barbaro and the name Sergi, of which there are many, and not all of them are guilty. Some of them are obviously very innocent. Pasquale Barbaro was the mastermind behind the two world's biggest ecstasy busts, based in Griffith, Lives in a big house up there. So
0: his father, uh, I think Little Trees Barbaro, was a conspirator to kill Donald Mackay. And the son, Pasquale, is a conspirator in the world's biggest ecstasy input.
1: Obviously, when Mackay was killed, the suspicion was going to go on the club Mafia. So there was six or seven, including two Barbaros and one Sergi, who had foolproof alibis for the night. One of them was actually in a pub with some police officers. Another one was he had betting tickets from a race course to prove that he was there. He had his winnings, so suspicion wouldn't be put on them. One of those men is the father of Pasquale Barbaro. And it's it's also a trait of the Calabria Mafia is that they really do keep it in the family. Some people call it la familia. It's because they intermarry, uh, cousins marry cousins. Sons follow fathers into the business. Some of them don't have a choice about it. Some of them want to. And i say Pasquale Barbaro was the leader of the gang and there was 33 people ended up being charged over that. 32 of them uh, ended up getting jail terms. Pasquale Barbaro himself got the longest jail sentence ever handed down in Victoria for a drug sentence. He got life with a 30-year minimum.
0: That is big. Uh, there are very serious murderers that don't get that much. There are. There have been. Julian Knight. Hmm. Which is interesting. A subject for another day, how sentences have actually got tougher, not weaker. Yes, that's true. Why Melbourne? You just pointed out that little old Melbourne, which of course isn't little and old these days, but was the site of these two big things, there must be a connection with certain crime families that established the reason.
1: There is a connection, and that connection is a bloke called Rob Karam, K-A-R-A-M, who had a business, a freight forwarding business, so he knows the shipping industry back to front. He was the go to man for Yamok Bells and, and, and various others. And, and obviously, organised crime gangs want to get drugs into Australia. Whilst there is some fake ecstasy made in Australia, your real ecstasy has to be imported because MDMA, the main ingredient of ecstasy, is incredibly hard to find. Most of your fake ecstasy tablets made by bikies in backyards here don't have any MDMA in. So, real MDMA uh, was a, a product that Yamok Bells and Yamarans knew could make a lot of money from so those people used Rob Karam to help them get the stuff in and the way he did that he would use a genuine company that really did import tomato tins or printing presses or tins of oil or the various other methods that these criminals have used to get drugs past customs and out on the street so he would create fake documentation so that people wouldn't be suspicious if such and such a company have got a container load of tin tomatoes. That was well, yeah, they import them every three months. So he would pick a legitimate company. That company would have no knowledge of this whatsoever. And in this case, again, a stroke of luck in the link to finding out who was going to be behind this importation. Is it what happens when any container arrives? It gets cleared through customs, and then it goes to a freight forwarding agency. They get the uh, the paperwork, the bill of lading, and somebody from the freight forwarding agency rings the company and says, your tin tomatoes are here. Come and get them. You've got three days because we need to keep the warehouse free. And the company then comes and picks up their tomatoes with a truck and takes them away. Yep. The particular person that was handling this didn't go to the paperwork because, you know, the paperwork was in a folder. And, and lots of people now who want to know a phone number just got their phone and use Google. And that's what they did. She knew the name of the company. Couldn't immediately lay a hand on the... So she just went went to Google, typed in the name of the company. The and phone number came up. And got the real and number. And she rang the real number because obviously the paperwork had the fake number on yes. and it would have gone straight through to the crime. So she rings this company and said, oh, you're t- tins of tomato here. And they said, what tins of tomato? We haven't got an order coming in for weeks yet. She got a bit suspicious and told her boss and, you know, the boss then called in the police and, you know, th- that, that was how they came to be able to follow that case through. And... The crooks thought something was a bit off, but they didn't know. And when I say off, uh, criminals use the term off. Is your phone off? Is my stash off? Are the drugs off? It just means the Mm. cops know about this Mm. or my phone has been bugged. So you've got all of these heavy criminals all coming to Melbourne, hoping to get their hands on all of these drugs, but they're frightened to go and get the container load of drugs because they haven't had the phone call that they were expecting. They haven't had the phone call saying, come and get it. So lots of bugged conversations because by then the cops have worked out who who's he, who in the zoo. And and, yeah. and, and and Lawyer X, the infamous Nicola Gobble, played a hand in that, in that she was quite close to both Rob Caram and a criminal called John Higgs, who was the bikey connection. So again, it's, it's the Calabrian Mafia going beyond what they used to do. Traditionally, they only dealt with their own kind. They grew marijuana, they sold marijuana, all through Italians, but... Once they left marijuana and started getting into heroin and ecstasy, they needed to involve others. And bikies are the main distributors of ecstasy because they've got security contracts with nightclubs. Nightclubs are where people go and buy ecstasy. So basically, you've got the Calabrian Mafia importing it through Rob Karam, who has Lebanese connections, through an Australian bikie. So they've involved different organised crime groups, all of whom intend making a profit out of it. Nicola Gobble was quite friendly with Higgs, She was regularly seen going to restaurants with him. And at that stage, the people following those people were not aware, as we are now, of her status as a police informer. There was only very few people at that stage were aware that she'd ever informed the police. Certainly the people working on this weren't aware of that. She was in Rob Caram's office one day and actually saw the Bill of Lading, which talked about these pills coming in. It appears that she, certainly she's given evidence that that she borrowed that bit of paper, photocopied it and gave it to her handlers which it would appear is how police knew which container to target. It just shows the links that she was prepared to go to. My belief is that she became a bit like Tizoni. She actually like doing it she liked mixing with the big crims she liked mixing with the coppers she was playing both sides because she thought nobody would ever find out who she was she was given that promise so she thought she had immunity she thought she was invincible she could keep drinking with these people she could keep my name is manny Carudis, and i'm a former new south wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts. social interactions with both sides. And all of these people played up to her ego. They all liked having her around. They were happy to buy her drinks because, you know, she was getting used by both sides.
0: A mixture of ego and risk-taking.
1: Yeah, yeah. look, I'm just sure she got a buzz out of it. She never expected anybody would find out yeah. who she was.
0: It is a, a marvellous connection. And she had the nerve to grab the bill of lading which indicated which actual containers the tomatoes were in, photocopy it and hand it to her handlers so they they could identify exactly the right ones. Yes. And was that a key piece of evidence? Oh, look, that was a key piece of
1: evidence because so many containers come into a, a big port like Melbourne that the last time I looked, it's less than 10% and certainly no higher than 15% of all the containers that come in end up going through the big X-ray machines to, to test what's in them. Most of the goods that come in aren't checked by anybody. They're not x-rayed. The paperwork just goes through because otherwise the port just couldn't operate because it takes a heck of a long time. There's no way they could check every container load and obviously helps if you know which ship is bringing in which container that's got the drugs in. It it narrows it down to... Push up the success rate quite a bit. Certainly does. And and look, it was still one of the, the great operations, a joint operation, uh, Victoria Police were involved, mainly the AFP that carried it through to get 33 convictions.
0: The only person that wasn't convicted or caught in this was, I think... Australia's most wanted man now.
1: And still is, Graham Jean Potter, yes. He was He was, He was. was a part of this right from the start. He'd met Pasquale Barbro uh, when they served some time in jail together and he was basically the heavy for the group. So you've got the bakies that are flogging it off, you've got the Lebanese blockers, the shipping contact, you've got the Calabrian Mafia connection that brings in the drugs, but everybody needs a heavy. And he's killed people in the past and he was uh, charged over this and uh, he was also charged with... A conspiracy to murder a couple of people in that obviously the dogs and the dogs or the surveillance crew were following various people mm. and they were also tapping telephones and they discovered that Graham Jean Potter and Pasquale Barbro and a couple of other heavies were in a car heading towards one of McGatto's son's weddings where a guest at that wedding was somebody that the Calabria mafia feared had become an informer and they wrongly feared that he was the person that had told police about the drugs. Now, I can't name that person because there is a suppression order. I've actually been to court and tried to fight that suppression order uh, and, uh, and have failed. Yeah, So I can't name him, but basically, and I've spoken to the police that were listening. So they're listening live and they suddenly find out that there's a carload of heavies driving to Mick Gatto's son's wedding to kill one of the guests. They obviously can't allow that to happen in that once they're aware that crime is going to be committed. But of course the people that are following them aren't your SOGs, you're not your people that are trained in how to, you know, intercept a vehicle and arrest everybody without, you know, getting shot yourself. So they're thinking, Oh, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna do this? And they're starting to set in train how they're gonna stop the car and arrest all of these people which would have yes saved the life of the person they were going to kill but it would have blown the whole operation and they had nowhere near enough evidence to charge those 33 people they could have charged maybe the top three or four but they wanted to get as many as possible it would have blown the whole operation they were about to do it when when the magnet that, would that stolen broke down and uh, and they couldn't get there so that person at the wedding continued at the wedding and had a good time and uh didn't know until I revealed that fact in uh, in my book, Busted, Every Home Should Have One, that this happened and that that aborted hit.
0: And is the moral of that story, Keith, that if you want a getaway car, don't choose a Mitsubishi?
1: <laughs> yes, not go the Toyota. The Toyotas are much more reliable. Now, Graham Jean Potter then disappeared. He was given bail, which... I think surprised a lot of people considering his background and he's just disappeared off the face of the earth it's now six or seven years ago since he disappeared and you know there's only been one sighting of him uh, up in queensland and that was several years ago now
0: and it's interesting there's a choice here is he really australia's most wanted man out there somewhere or is he extremely dead what do you think
1: oh look i Look, it's hard to know. Certainly, yes, um, the Calabrian Mafia would not want him to be alive because uh, if he was captured and police said you're going to jail for a heck of a long time, unless you start, he, he knows the ins and outs. He was very close to Pasquale Bobro.
0: Of course, we've discussed Graham Potter in our episode On The Loose. So if anyone out there has seen him, could they please give us a call or even... The
1: Just one more little interesting tale in relation to Pasquale Barbro. He was your typical uh, Calabrian Mafia figure. He had the wife and the four kids in the big house in Griffith, but he also had the mistress, uh, Sharon Roper, you know, good-looking blonde, quite a bit younger than him, and he spent a lot of time in Melbourne organising this, and he, he'd actually set up a love nest in uh, in Latrobe Street, which the police had both video surveillance inside, I think the television was bugged, Uh, they were watching the television while the federal police were watching them and they had audio you know the phones off and they got lots of evidence from that love nest and it was the love nest where the final raids happened in 2008 it was 13 months after the drugs came in is when the arrests were made in 2008 and god bless them the federal police saved the taxpayer a lot of money because they had to do simultaneous raids on lots of places And Then they found out that a prominent figure from a prominent Mafia family had died and that there was going to be a funeral in Melbourne on a particular day. And a lot of the people from Griffith that they needed to arrest in Griffith were actually coming to Melbourne. And three of them were staying with Pasquale Barbro in the love nest. So they thought, well, why read all of those properly? Why not just do it the morning after remembering that there's been a wake and they've probably all had a fair bit of alcohol and they've all gone to bed at two or three o'clock in the morning? only to be rudely awakened at um, you know, the usual time that police do their raids, which is when everybody's asleep. And so basically they did the raid, they threw the, uh, the firecrackers in there, um, and anybody that watched the footage of the lynch siege would know that it looks like there's lots of bombs and things going off, but they're just what they call the flashbangs. So they throw the flashbangs in, so that the people wake up in enormous fright and think that there's guns being fired at them, or there's bombs. So they, they become more compliant and easier to arrest. They then go in and uh, arrest all of these people and there's Sharon Roper naked in bed with Pasquale Bobro and um, the dogs who'd been surveilling her had never seen her other than when she was really well made up because Pasquale Barbro, the whole reason he had a younger, good-looking blonde was that he could squire her around and you know she so always carried the Gucci bags and looked incredibly good. Let me tell you, she didn't look particularly good after being dragged out of bed naked at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning having only had a couple of hours sleep
0: None of us would, Keith.
1: The police then took that moment to take the mugshot picture that um, appears on her record. And that mugshot picture has the teary eyes. She she looks about 15 years older than um, anybody had ever seen her before. And I was able to get access to that photograph and uh, took great delight in using it in full colour in Boston.
0: And was Sharon Roper subsequently convicted herself?
1: She was. She got a six with a four from memory and is due at fairly soon.
0: That's reassuring from a legal perspective.
1: She was one of the 33 people charged and I'll say the only one that still hasn't been before the courts and convicted is uh, Australia's most wanted man, Graham Jean Potter. And I think,
0: uh, Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, but Graham Jean Potter is an unusual character to have been employed by a Calabrian mafia gang who are very tight-knit because he, of course, was... I think a uh, a miner, as in coal miner or similar, from up near Newcastle somewhere.
1: He was, and he had done time killing a girl in the, in the bath and uh, disposing of her body. Uh,
0: essentially you... a domestic murder when he was a very young man. So yes. he wasn't a, a criminal by birth or inclination as a, a young man, but he did a shocking murder in his hometown as a very young man
1: he was his, his box he was due to get married he was at his yeah. box and he met yeah. this other girl and he took this other girl home and uh you know it would appear that she rejected his advances and uh, he ended up killing her and, and did some time over it and he certainly suspected of having done other hits as a paid hitman later uh, yes pasquale bobby met him in jail that's how they met and you know became friendly and uh, he moved to tasmania by then and uh, the the plan was that some of the drugs were going to be sent to Tasmania, so he was the Tasmanian connection. Some of them were going to go to Sydney, some of them were going to go to Griffith, a lot of them were going to be Melbourne. So basically, I mean, 15 million pills is a lot to put on the market at one time. So, you know, they'd been planning where they were going to distribute them and Tasmania was certainly one of them and uh, Graham Jean Potter was the person that was going to be involved in that.
0: It was enough for a pill for every adult
1: Australian? Well, the sad fact is uh, 15 million pills didn't go on the market because of that. And yet any teenager the following Friday night could go into any nightclub in Melbourne and still buy one. And that's the sad fact. It just shows that for every seizure they get, another 20 or 30 get in there. Organised crime actually factors that in a bit like, you know, doing your tax return. Oh, look, for every 20 containers, we know that they're going to get one, but the other 19 will get through. Because there is no shortage of ecstasy then and there still isn't now. Plenty of it still gets through.
0: Keith, we've worked uh, together and beside each other and against each other for decades now. And uh, I know for a fact that you've written quite a few books, starting with your first one, Crimson Grass Castles, which was originally published by uh, a small regional publisher but has now been published by a big publisher, so it's still available. You've also got out Busted, the complete story of the tomato tin ecstasy busts, and Mugshots
1: 3. And probably Mugshots 4, 5, and 6 to come. Lauren Wood here from the Super Footy Podcast. We'll be here each and every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcast, with all of the action from across the AFL, news, views, and the biggest issues from across the game. Here at the Herald Sun,
0: a troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.